All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Everybody, welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. So this is another episode in our second season, and we're no longer just a webinar. We have become a podcast. I don't know what, really what that means, other than that we're podcasts. So that's it. Obviously, cool. means we're famous, right? I know. Hundred percent. It does mean we're famous. <laughs> we're gonna take all that sponsorship money right now and retire. I guess. I mean, that's that's a thing of beauty. Um, so today uh, we have uh, Ryan O'Donnell, Rhino, speaking to us about social media. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself in a minute, but Joe is going to go over some of the logistics here. Yeah, so like Justin said, we're a podcast now, uh, so we've had to figure out how to accommodate having this live version that people can come to, as well as just an audio version uh, that's available as a podcast. So we had to make some changes. Uh, Every rant will continue to be free uh, and live or wherever you stream your podcast. So nothing has changed there. Uh, and if you want to donate, you can still do that. Uh, but uh, we've modified how we handle CEUs. So if you want CEUs for this rant or any other rants, uh, you can purchase and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Don't worry, you don't have to remember that. I'm going to put it in the chat box. Um, so if you're interested in CEUs for this, just follow that link. Uh, you can add the rant to your carts and you'll have to answer a question about the keywords and then you're done. Everything's a, a nice automated process. Uh, so I'm going to take over the keywords. Another change from season one. Justin has lost his power for keywords. So the opening keyword for this one is Tom. Do you want to know how to spell that? It's right there. T-O-M our opening keyword. So make sure you're keeping track of that if you want CEUs. Uh, and uh, continue to ask questions. We like this to be driven by everyone who's asking questions. Uh, you can do that in two ways. One is through the Q&A. That'll allow you to ask questions either anonymous, anonymously uh, and we can post it up so everyone can see what we're discussing uh, or you can put it in a chat. Uh, the safe way is the Q&A. Sometimes things get lost in the chat if the chat gets going. So if you wanna make sure your question gets answered, use the Q&A, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's all the logistics. Season two, crazy. So, so the keyword won't be where and the closing keyword won't be masks. Like, no, no, not for every one of them. Like you, but, but people still, should wear masks. There's still a public service announcement, right? A it is. Mask. Wash your hands too. That's an important thing too. Just. So with that, uh, we are fortunate enough to have really the guru of social media for behavior analysts. And with Ryan uh, joining us today. And one of the changes that we made at the end of season one was we know who Ryan is, but maybe not everybody knows who Ryan is. I find that hard to believe, but maybe the case. Uh, so Ryan, can you just take a couple of minutes and introduce yourself and your familiarity yeah. with this topic of social media? For sure. Thanks for having me, y'all. Um, really excited. So uh, I am a board certified behavior analyst. I largely have been in the field for about 10 years now, 10, 10 and a half-ish. 
um, stumbled across the field like most, got into uh, a situation where I was taking a class, found it really interesting, was doing all right at it, and begged my professor to help me find a way to try to figure out how to apply this stuff that I was reading about. Started working at an adult day program um, for adults with intellectual disabilities. Got to see some of the power of what happens when you help people out achieving their goals with behavior analysis and said, sign me up for this sort of stuff. A few people tried talking me out of it, <laughs> saying it's going to be an uphill battle your entire career. And I was like, what are you talking about? Helping people doesn't seem like an uphill battle. Um, in hindsight, they may have been right, but it's been uh, super rewarding and fascinating. So I graduated in 2013 from Florida Institute of Technology, the brick and mortar program down, down in Orlando, Florida. I was there for um, a couple years, but tagged on an extra year after graduating to help start up a program for um, students in the school system that had really severe behavior needs and supports were needed. So typically talking about two to one staffing ratios to um, uh, two staff to one student ratios there. And uh, that was super fun, really useful, really needed in that community. Uh, but I loved the West Coast. So I moved back to Reno, found another job working with adults with intellectual disabilities. And there was a night that I remember watching a joke kind of parody video of somebody. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was. But I saw the joke parody and I was like, hey, this makes sense. What is it? So I finished watching um, this woman's YouTube video and then hopped over to the original. And I just found myself consuming this one YouTuber, Casey Neistat's content over and over and over and over again. And to the point that I like, my alarm goes off. I have to go to the gym and go to work, like my normal schedule. I stayed up all night binging it. And I went in and like half embarrassingly, like half impressed though, like to my colleagues at the time office. And I was like, hey, because I was responsible for essentially the lives of hundreds of people receiving services during the day. And I was like, hey, I stayed up all night and like I shouldn't be the one making any sort of decisions today. Like, I'm sorry, like I showed up, but I stayed up watching and I was like embarrassed to say like watching YouTube all night. Um, and we just kind of chuckled about it. And I sat there fascinated all day of like, why, why was I just like clicking in the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And that was kind of the start of an interest in social media um, beyond just posting and sharing a little bit. Um, I was really trying to figure out what it was that was underpinning and making it so um, interesting slash addictive at the same time. Um, and so in short, the last few years, I've picked up a video camera, started running around seeing if I could have anybody say yes to help me uh, record and share something related to behavior analysis, started up a YouTube channel called The Daily BA. And uh, that was just kind of the premise, share stuff out there, see what happens. And it is uh, taken me all over the place, learned a lot of cool perspectives. And I guess like a lots of ups and downs that I think we'll get into when it comes to social media, the benefits, the drawbacks. Um, on one hand, it's like a really good dissemination tool, but on the other hand, like it's a lot of power and you could disseminate incorrectly um, and, and have all sorts of slew of issues. So right now I run a media company um, where I help others make either ABA related content for marketing their businesses or such, help run a couple small conferences, uh, but largely speaking, kind of a digital nomad is what they call it. People that can have figured out how to kind of create online content and make enough of a living um, to keep doing so. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. I haven't formally, I'll disclose to anyone, I haven't formally practiced in about two and a half, three years now, I think. Um, so I do no longer practice working directly with people. It's largely this media world that I live in.
I don't know what I missed, but that's it. No, uh, <laughs> that, that was that was wonderful. Uh, cool. And I think probably everyone has that's here has to be familiar with the Daily BA. I think the the content that's put out there is very wide reaching, at least within our field, uh, and probably even outside of our field, because I know that's one of the goals as well is to disseminate behavior analysis more broadly. Um, but I think uh, now that everyone knows who you are and what you do, let's let's open this bad boy up. Uh, so, uh, Joe, before you open this bad boy up, I don't know if you said it, but everyone who's live, remember that it's driven by your questions. So fire those questions away. It's really first come, first serve. Uh, so fire them away. So it's just not you and I asking the questions. I sure did. For, Are you not paying I'm, attention? I, I, you know, I'm multitasking here. <laughs> I'm ready for any of the hard ones too. Yeah. Um, I told, I disclosed with both Joe and Justin a little bit beforehand. I've been like doing a rethink and looking at social media and like in hindsight, looking at my old stuff too. So, um, don't feel free or don't feel bad if you want to throw something out there that's kind of self-reflective of, uh, calling me to be self-reflective or whatnot. Sure, sure. And there's some questions coming in already, but I think, but before we hop to those, let's, let's open it up a little bit more broadly because I mean we've talked about social media on rants before and you know Bob Ross is asking one of the questions and he actually was here when we talked about social media um, but we've never really gotten into the meat of social media as as its own thing uh, and so I think if we're going to discuss some of the benefits and dangers that are associated with it it might be important to know like just what social media is and what it does and I think uh, I have a very limited understanding of the big beast that social media is. Like I, I did watch the uh, the movie on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, and I think yeah. that gives you some insight into the data and the information they have and what they're doing. Uh, but I wanted to get your insight in that, given that you spent much more time in that world than we have. Yeah. So um, if I'm peeking over here, I have some notes is what I'm looking at. So um, a definition that I found, uh, it's pretty interesting, websites and applications that enable users to create and share content or to participate in social networking. So social media is almost like defined with also this ability to social network, which is kind of weird there. Um, but really we're talking about, there's, I like to discuss them as like these social media platforms are typically like the Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Reddit, Pinterest, Twitter, Snapchat, et cetera. You have, MySpace. yeah, MySpace, <laughs> <laughs> throwback to Tom. Um, and then also you have messenger apps, which sometimes I just want to asterisk here. Some, some places have messenger apps that are used more heavily. Um, Facebook messenger can be an example. WeChat can be an example. Um, and uh, these, these sort of things sometimes can have similar properties, but I won't talk too much about them today. Um, so those are largely like examples, I would say, what is defined as, um, the biggest thing I think that's really per, like interesting here is, in a, in a way, it's a free platform to share, express thoughts, find others, create community, etc. Um, but the expense of what? And it's largely when we click agree, our user-generated content. So by us giving away our information on any of these, whether that's a photo, a YouTube video, Facebook post. Um, MySpace post back in the day, <laughs> these, the, they run off of user generated info. So the, really the agreement that I look at now um, is us or anybody that's putting on information there is providing the information that they need to actually help run their business model, which is ran through advertisements. 
And this kind of breaks down into two different areas. Your advertisements in a way can get more um, effective, more uh, and better at targeting, which I hear some people say like, hey, I appreciate the ads that are effectively, that I'm actually trying to look for. So like this way of advertising to me off of my information. Some people find that a value, but there's this really weird line of like, at, at what point do we stop that micro-targeting as they call it? And um, where can that become too much? So for example, uh, certain posts and discussions could be analyzed by a social media platform they found, and people can realize sometimes even before, um, before people realize that they're pregnant, that they are pregnant, and they can start feeding them ads towards these sort of things. And it could be based off of a search history or discussions around things that they've had. And so think about how crazy that is, that, that your user-generated content being shared can find out insights of like that particular nature <laughs> um, prior to you realizing these sort of things. So the aggregate behavior and behavioral data that we're providing is just allowing these platforms to leverage largely advertisers um, towards us, which is the revenue stream. Um, and this has probably been it forever, like since they've came up in, I don't know, 2005, six, seven, I never studied MySpace too closely, but YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, like this is how they, they largely run. Not that they don't have other, other things that bring in their money. Um, but yeah, the, this fundamental shifts seem to have been, um, you know, early days of the tech world, Apple and such were selling software, hardware, things like that. But the commodities now selling our user generated data. And that's where the questions really are at. Why you see Facebook um, and Mark Zuckerberg having to go up in front of Congress and like answering these sort of questions because it's really changed the game. And I think myself, 100%, but largely all of us were like, not quite sure when we clicked, I agree to terms, like what was going on. And the question is, is when did these people realize that that's actually what they were doing is getting us to freely give them the information, the most valuable information people say our data to be able to leverage their business model. Um, and so I've known some of this, learned some about it, uh, largely was just kind of trying to understand how to use this dissemination tool and how to reach people and how to kind of build a business around it. Um, but in the last six months, I've been really diving into what are some implications, which I kind of alluded to there, which I would summarize as this ad-based ad revenue model, like kind of weird ones leveraging off of user-generated um, content. And then when it comes to professional issues, I guess we'll get into is um, how do we regulate those, right? Which calls into all sorts of stuff from free speech to platforms, to publishers, et cetera. So I don't know. I don't want to get too far in the weeds. I'm going to pause it for a sec. <laughs> no, I, I think it, it's great. And uh, it feels like the commodity is, you said user-generated content. Would another way to say that would be just like our online behavior? Straight up. Yeah. yeah. Everything we post, do, say, click, like, react to, uh, share. Like this is like, you can copy a link, share it in a private message with somebody and they'll know that you've copied that link to share it elsewhere. Like, like it is, it is your interactions on that platform, everything that you do. Um, and when you think about uh, the power of machine learning, artificial intelligence, like they can draw the lines between all of those things too, that we may not be able to, to readily understand. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a question of with each platform, like we don't know how, how well it works, but it, it should be working fantastically and really uh, just like unbelievably well at understanding us, but we just, we don't know that. And we, like, we don't know to what 
extent since this is a private industry, private business. Yeah, uh, well, and I think that creates some uh, interesting discussions on the benefits and the dangers on a more global scale uh, for behavior analysts, because we can, if we were able to get in there and look at the data, we could help provide some, some information and mm -hmm. uh, some understanding of how well it's working and which direction it's working. And then I think it's, well, is that our responsibility uh, at that level? And then at the various other levels, uh, what are our responsibilities there, you know, because we could look at it from how do we get in there and, and look at this big data, have access to this big data and see what are the contingencies that are going on in social media that are driving certain things in terms of just human behavior more broadly. And then how is that affecting, you know, subspecialties within the field of behavior analysis? And I think where Justin and I tend to have a, a lot of interaction or see a lot is, is you know, autism and autism intervention and, and that in spe specifically Facebook. Uh, and if you can't tell, I'm trying to take it from where you're at to the first question that came in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably failing, but let's see. Because you no, did bring so up like, so what's our role in this? What's our responsibility as behavior analysts um, or just generally as human beings uh, in, in this situation? And the very first question that came in was, do BCBAs have a responsibility to attempt false or misleading information posted on social media? Yeah. So my understanding of this is i guess we can look at a couple things there was uh some small little additions i think added to the bscb's ethical code to kind of imply that social media is also an environment in which we need to uh still self-police and work together right and so i i say yes um we need to and when you when you receive that bcba credential or uh, rbt or bcbad credential right like you're now opting into that you now are responsible for that ethical code. And so the interesting thing here is that like, like practically, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're, you need to be scouring as a BCBA for every single post that's out there and correcting it? And if you're not doing that, that you're not the ethical BCBA, like there's, I could see it potentially on my tiring. Facebook timeline. Yeah. Yeah. No, for real. I could see it on, for example, I could see it on my Facebook timeline, have something that's more pressing in the moment that I need to handle with, say with a client and not respond to in the moment. Does that make me unethical? Like nobody saw that. Nobody could verify those sort of things, right? Like there's, there's, there's the, I think part of this also comes down to our, our core system is really for ethical issues is kind of this one of self-policing where we need to all kind of watch each other um, when we may be misstepping. And so I, de I do think that applies, but it may be a time to have some harder discussions in the field as to like, can we create a, a, a better set of guidelines or a better system to kind of understand this information? Because you can easily um, turn like a, like I think one of the biggest problems right now is posts without enough information or with often not the right information because the person posting doesn't have that information or knowledge, it can, like, those can be pretty dangerous and concerning for people, right? When you start to, um, for example, have really advantageous RBTs or new BCBAs creating content that are, have some glaring gaps because of lack of history and experience in the field or understanding of research. Like those are things where it's, 
almost like it's time to come back to the table, I think, and rediscuss on like, is this the best system of us trying to call each other out when we think it's not accurate? I think with that, Ryan, uh, some of it has to go with that there should be an expectation that you can clarify information and not agree with other people's perspectives and that's professional discourse. And it seems that we've gone away from that being allowed or acceptable. Uh, so, you know, someone can say something and you can come in with research on, on the other side or even a perspective on the other side. And all of a sudden that's not allowed, that's attacked or how dare you attacking mm -hmm. that person when that's just professional discourse. And as BCBAs, we should be used to that and accept and embrace that. I don't know what your perspective is on that, but I think that's one of the problems that I'm seeing on social media is someone brings something up and you bring the other side and they don't like it very much. Definitely, yeah, I would totally agree with you on that. Um, you know, I've had, I won't share the channel names or anything like any social media names, but I've had a couple people that just have uh, personally blocked me from ever commenting on their stuff again because of the result of bringing up a different perspective. Um, I've done in the past, like very abrasively. Um, I've learned not to do that as abrasively now in the, like we're talking about years ago. Um, and even when I try to put in a constructive framework, it seems to be that if you, you're hitting on something that, that might be correct, it's hard to swallow. And as a content creator, uh, I've had those too. Um, right before we hopped on, I had uh, a post that was up on uh, some RFT related content with some people coming from a verbal behavior perspective, they were like, hey, what about this and that? And those are hard. And they almost take me like eight times longer to react, right, to comment back to and like chat with than I like made the original post. But that's, that's just kind of like, I don't know, I think that's what we need to be having those discussions. And it, I guess what I'm trying to acknowledge here is it's, I think it's hard to frame the constructive criticism in a way that will be understood. And then it's even harder than to read that and then continue that discourse onwards it's it's like we have a we have a limitation it seems in the amount of information and like how much discourse we can really have as a result of 280 characters on twitter or a facebook post or a youtube video um and in a way it's almost like how how seriously should we take each post and what we're putting out there there's not really a rubric, a guideline, and there's no real process to vet that information like we have in a peer-reviewed process. Um, and that stuff's being forgotten, sadly. Um, you know, I would, I would personally weigh like the peer-reviewed process research. I look at these things as like not one study necessarily, but like as you have a study and more studies and more evidence and more peer-reviewed evidence surmounting, like that sort of stuff would trounce an in, in incorrect uh, social media post, right? But it doesn't seem that those are weighted equally, um, like you're saying, Justin. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think the, oh, go ahead, Joe. Uh, I, I, was, I, I completely agree. It doesn't seem like, uh, and I think this is one of the dangers of social media is lots of people are using it to access and using it as their only form of access to information regarding you know, the field of behavior analysis. Uh, so outside of the general problems where I think professional discourse in more broadly has become a problem within our, our world. Uh, and I think social media is, is shining a, a nice light on that because of the increased activity I think that's happening given, you know, quarantine and everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that to me, one of the concerns or one of my concerns is those things remain as permanent products online. 
Uh, and if those are going to be weighted more than, you know, peer reviewed research, uh, we need to consider how we're disseminating information within our field. And, and then what do we do? What's our role as behavior analysts? Like you said, Ryan, maybe we need to review and, and really get some people that are more informed to make changes to the ethical code to provide some more guidance here as yeah. to like, so if I come across uh, misinformation or someone saying something that doesn't align with the peer reviewed literature, how, how do I, how, what is my responsibility as a behavior analyst in that situation? Yeah, and this is something that uh, I feel like different areas of the sciences, ours included, um, and this is anecdotal, just to, to clarify, are, are running in this issue now, whereas this stuff has been ran into almost a decade ago by others already. So like, if you look at YouTube, the YouTube community, um, they learned pretty quickly that certain keywords, tags, titles, content creators, like the faster they could create stuff that got people to pay attention to them, like the more they soaked up that market space, essentially. Um, and people were paying attention to them for the issues. And it's not always the uh, best person, most qualified, one that's best at discourse, whatever it is, right? Like you can add whatever qualifier you want into there. And so a few years ago, when I was really getting into this stuff and realizing what was performing well on my channels, what wasn't, you can start to realize there's certain gaps of content where like, if we make this, one of them, for example, precision teaching. If I make a precision teaching video, it's gonna kind of get embedded there. There's not nearly as much competition for it when we're talking about, like there's not a lot of content creators in that area historically since the advent of the internet. Um, so it's easier to make something there that gets ranked higher, that gets more views, et cetera. Um, which by the way, if anyone wants to make great content in that area, go for it, that's a window. <laughs> um, but there's, so there's, like you start to realize these kind of gaps and ways to maybe create stuff to help you um, build up your clout, like shares, whatever it is that you're going for, impact, et cetera. However you want to define your goals and what you're going for. Um, and I was talking with a few like behavior analysts that are definitely leaders in the field um, about, hey, like, I think this is a content race, actually. Like this is who can create the behavior analytic content that's going to be found later now like right now and the more we create now the better off you're going to be able to have uh in a way influence over what people are finding and that just wasn't an interesting discussion to a few people um that were uh, in leadership positions within abi and the bacb and i get that, that that they're not in the game of content creation but it's almost like i look at it as an obligation to be able to um of of those entities to protect our field by investing in and making sure that we're known for what we really are, which is a science at the end of the day and these sort of things that are kind of being lost. So I, I feel like part of this, like the writing was kind of on the wall, unfortunately, of we're going to get in these discussions and be really hard. And each day, I guess it's going to be harder to come back from if we don't have those harder conversations about how do we start correcting this issue now? Um, because they just kind of, further get embedded, if that makes sense. Like the tag words, uh, the keywords um, and metadata is, is something where, like if you had 10 people creating precision teaching content to go off from a past example, each day that's gonna be harder and harder. There's gonna be more people competing to try to like create content in that area. And in a way, what we've learned from social media is it's not always the most accurate, true, <laughs> uh, coherent information that makes it. It's usually the stuff that's on the opposite side there whatever can drive the most clicks, get the most emotional reactions, et cetera. Um, and so, I don't know, it's, it's difficult. We, 
Well, and I think this is where having someone like you with a deeper understanding, or at least a, a better understanding, I, I, I don't want to throw my perception of your understanding of social media at you. Right. Um, but to me, you're a guru. Uh, so, I question it daily. <laughs> <laughs> but having someone who knows that uh, has a deeper understanding will help us um, because flooding the content, like that didn't even occur to me, like just literally flooding the information out there. So it, it almost, um, you know, floods out all the other things that are available. Uh, and, and, but I think then the danger is who's in control of ensuring that that content is the appropriate content and the desired content. Because I think, I mean, there's, you know, infighting within our field about which direction we should go with various things and still discussions as to what the philosophical underpinnings are of our, of our field. So I think that creates some other problems as well. Um, that's but, it. That's what I meant by the content race. Like it's, it's kind of who can create what, we want the field to be known for. Um, and I'll, I'll side note that on like, I think what will happen over time is you'll just see more fracturing, unfortunately, of the community where there's gonna be kind of different small sub brands. We've seen VV, RFT, but we've also seen um, the difference in styles of approaches versus uh, maybe something like BACB versus what is it, the behavior intervention, BICC. Mm -hmm. their credential versus what you are doing yourself. Like we see this natural fracturing, I think, to try to kind of say, here's some different quality indicators that these different communities value or different things they're going for. Um, so I think that's a realistic thing that'll be happening too. And already is in a way. Uh, and social media is kind of, I don't know, playing a role in that or exacerbating it or both. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I think social media as an exacerbator is, is, is a nice description. Uh, so uh, there's several questions that have been flowing in during this cool. conversation. Uh, the, the first one, which I think we'll all agree on the answer is, do you think that it's okay that so much information is false in behavior analytic Facebook pages? I'm going I'm uh, to branch out there and say, <laughs> yes, I think we would all think that that's a problem. <laughs> I think we all would agree it's a problem, but we have to look at why it's continuing to happen and being allowed. I mean, it's not, the, yes, it's facts are facts at the end of the day, right? And there's a great uh, commercial from CNN. I don't care if you're watching Fox News or if you watch <laughs> MNBC and I'm not getting political with it, but they show an apple, right? And they say, this is an apple. You can call it a banana, you can yell it, banana, 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 but at the end of the day, it's an apple. And the same is true for us, right? Like there are certain facts that happen and we have to see why people are putting non-factual information and it's continuously happening on social media pages. And I think some of it, uh, I think Ryan mentioned, there is a difference on peer-reviewed journals, uh, even peer-reviewed chapters where in a, a peer-reviewed journal, and even, and I want to say on uh, big conferences, on a peer-reviewed journal, I can't just say anything. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't do it. The reviewers will catch me, the action editor will catch me, the editor will catch me, and then the journal Springer will catch me and say, no, that's not, you have to remove that. On social media, the admin or the moderator can just allow it um, or not be aware of it. And so there's, there's safeguards in place in other uh, organizations or entities or outlets that, mm -hmm. are not, that are not present in social media currently, or at least not present in some other Facebook groups or Twitter. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things, um, <clears throat> sometimes people ask me about like, how do we create this sort of stuff? I, 
I, I've seen a lot of social media creators outside of our field. They'll build these teams around things. They have multiple, I was watching one this morning, one of the, one of the people I follow on their, their review process, they build internal review boards essentially to make sure that their stuff going out is within the, the boundaries of the brand and the things that they want to be putting out there. Um, those are things that we could start doing individually at a level and working together to do uh, a podcast with three people in this way, like gives a little bit of a sense of that because if I said something outlandish, y'all could call me out on it and we could talk about it, right? Like we could dive in more in depth there. Um, but yeah, those things are missing. And I think one other interesting thing that I believe is going on here is when we dig down into behavior analysis as a field, we situate under a philosophy of contextualism. And the idea there is that what is true is based on pragmatic truth criterion, right? Like what works. And what shifting seems to be here is uh, almost like it doesn't have to follow pragmatism all the time necessarily, like it may, but it's almost like what's becoming valuable on social media or what social media may select for and what seems to be getting more valuable in some of our Facebook groups and social media is coherence with a certain framework or ideology, which is really scary. This could be scary, like for a number of reasons. Like if I said that the ABC model was the only way to go and we're only going to allow ABC model descriptions of behavior to be posted in here, like how does that help our field when we know the importance of a four-term contingency, right? You can do the same thing with VB versus RFT if you want to look like something like that. Um, if we're only allowing one or the other, like we're missing opportunities to have more robust discussions. And I think what is happening is uh, a person's subjective uh, perspective, whether or not it's rooted, whether or not it's valid, rooted in uh, the actual real world contingencies of what's going on, is is what's being selected for, rather than saying, okay, like. I understand your perspective, but is there a way that we can really verify this, validate this, experimentally decide, like figure out whether or not this is actually the variable that you, you know, that you're you're saying is so important is actually the the functional um, relation that's going on here. So it's 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 almost like it's allowing a shift away from our pragmatic truth criterion, which I think is the scariest thing, um, and it's. It's not, it's like the, uh, our culture, um, like you're saying, doesn't ask for that and doesn't demand of that. And that's, that's what's been demanded since day one in this field, right? I, I mean, I think it's a, a wonderful point. And I think a, a lot of what was discussed makes me think we need a contingency al uh, analysis of what's going on on social media. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also makes me think that um, based on watching Social Dilemma and talking to you, Ryan, that these social media companies and, and platforms are actually selecting our verbal communities for us uh, in very subtle and, and but obvious ways if you learn enough about it. Uh, and that's where it's, you know, they're finding ways that based on your posts, they can fit you into this framework and then provide content for you that you're more likely to interact with. And, you know, that's, that's the selling of our behavior and whatnot, but it's also dangerous um, when they're selecting those verbal communities for us. Uh, but before I get too far off track, the, the discussion about the, the facts and whatnot, there, there's a question as to what is the difference between facts and perspectives? And I think that's, that's a tough one because 
um, as scientists, to me, what a fact is, is the best available evidence. Uh, and that's what I'm working off of. And sometimes the best available evidence changes across time. And as a scientist, I need to be willing to accept that. Um, so to me, the difference between a perspective and a fact from, from my view as a scientist and a behavior analyst is what's the best available scientific evidence that I have to operate under. And to me, that's a fact. Uh, a perspective might not be informed by that best available evidence, but is a perspective nonetheless, uh, but might not be able to be supported by scientific evidence. I don't know if you all have varying opinions or want to add anything else to that. I'm okay. I can get behind that. <laughs> the, I win. It's yeah. It's interesting. The I think the the other area that's really interesting here to think about both the perspectives and the facts is it's really ripe. This plat these platforms are for falling into some uh, stepping into some landmines. So one of them is like reification. It's very easy to have something that you that you state then start to almost become like a reality and a physical thing that actually matters. And it's like these platforms almost allow for certain logical fallacies to really occur and for that to be acceptable within the community. And I think this is another area that's that's really tricky. Like it's it's not, it, this happens all over social media where you see things like um, cherry picking information, straw man arguments that are going on, right? And people don't realize that those fall apart in the scientific community, but they're being almost selected for and reinforced primarily in these Facebook groups um, and larger social media platforms as well. So it's, yeah, fact perspective, but also like when does a perspective become a fact when it's really not and that's that's also what seems to be happening yeah well and from a from a strictly behavior analytic perspective you know uh, we could we could go down we could have a whole rant about fact and truth like is there yeah. a truth with a capital t or truth with a lowercase t you know like that's that's a, a pigeonhole that we could definitely go down but it seems to this conversation has seemed to spark a lot of a lot of questions related to um fact versus uh you know perspective and whatnot yeah. so i think since the audience is interested in this we'll we'll keep rolling with it so the next question that aligns with this is who gets to determine what facts are isn't science always looking for new and accurate information how do we know what we what we are reading is fact or not <laughs> some heavy hitting questions so well, i mean <laughs> they are the, fir the first part of that I hope you didn't get rid of it, uh, Joe. Who gets to determine what facts are? Data determines what facts are, right? I mean, we're scientists. At the end of the day, data is going to determine what facts are. And it's important to have within data that you have good experimental designs and you display functional control and have a functional relationship. And as you mentioned, Ryan, it's not just one study. It's having multiple studies. So I would encourage uh, like the Horner article, um, which talks about evidence-based and his, his and his colleagues' criterion for that. That's what determines what facts are. Facts are based on data. And because we're a field of science, we do highly value empirical data. And we value it being published in peer-reviewed journals. This does not mean that we're minimizing clinical data, 
but that if you have clinical data, we also need to back that up with empirical data. At least that's my perspective. I'll let yeah. you guys weigh in and because I have I have thoughts on the other two. I'll say I'll say I personally agree with the way that you described it there, and I, I would uh, lean on that myself. The thing that I think that's going on right now and what people potentially listening can ask themselves are, is like, what are they saying is acceptable with the data versus not? And so in our field, data um, from like a radical behavioral perspective could be um, something that you measure yourself, your own independent private events, things that you're accounting for, right? But still fits within this frame, scientific framework of empiricism and actually going through the validation process, like are you actually measuring what you want to measure, et cetera. And I think what's if anyone's listening out there that's not kind of checking themselves in those sort of ways, your data could still be data to you, but it could be uh, wildly off on your measurement, uh, validity, on the actual prevalence of that sort of thing. Like there's a whole slew of errors that can happen there. And so data to our field of behavior analysis really fits in, like we were saying, with, like I was saying with that contextual pragmatic perspective. And it's something that, um, builds an evidence base over time. And our danger right now is that that, that level of data is being almost, uh, I would say just straight up is being equivocated with a single person's perspective, which is, is not the same thing. And it doesn't mean that your perspective, your one data point, whatever it is that you potentially gathered, isn't on the right track of something that's capital T truth and like valid and out there, but we, we has to go through the process to really understand how valid that is. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it makes, uh, to me, it makes complete sense. And I think maybe the danger is looking at it uh, in a binary fashion. Uh, it's either fact or it's fiction or it's perspective or it's evidence. Uh, and maybe looking at what are the levels of evidence? Yep. Uh, yep. You know, as opposed and you start on one side and you move your way up to the other. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's more of a continuum. But I think how, the problem is how do we get people to recognize that there might be a continuum? And you know, it goes back to what you said uh, just now. Perspectives are getting more weight uh, than a large body of potential scientific evidence. Uh, and the role of social media in that is could be a, a topic all, all on its own, just like yeah. who gets to determine what facts are. Like, I think that could be an entire discussion on its own outside of social media. But mm -hmm. I think um, maybe something we need to consider moving forward with social media is what are the levels of evidence and how do we communicate those levels of evidence for things that are being discussed in these various groups? Yeah, but I think with that, Joe, there's, there could be uh, it on a continuum, right? But there are things that are unfactual at the end of the day. So if someone says the majority of any population agrees with me, that's just, or agrees with this perspective, that's not factual. Like, I was going to say, no one agree, no, no large perspective group of people agree with you ever, Justin. Yeah, well, that, that's true. But if I, if I was to say, you know, all, the majority of children uh, who have Down syndrome agree with this perspective, that without data showing that, there's millions, hundreds of thousands of people with Down syndrome in the United States of America. Like, unless you've actually taken data on that, you can't make that. That's a factually incorrect statement. Now, you could say the majority of people I've come in contact with agree with this or I've talked to. And so, mm -hmm. like, I don't consider that a level of evidence. I consider that you're bringing in your perspective and you're not bringing in data depending on how you frame 
the question. Does that make sense to at least you two? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, but I don't think it's um, incompatible with looking at it from levels of evidence. Like uh, that would be on the very end of yeah, the Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. You know? It's on one end of the continuum, but it's on that very low end of the continuum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I, th I think the last part of that question was, uh, I have to find it, there's so many questions, which is always a good sign. How do we know uh, what we are reading is fact or not? Yeah, how do you know what we're reading is fact or not? I think one thing that we should do as behavior analysts is when someone is making this as a factual argument or saying this exists, ask them to see the research on it. Ask them to see the evidence on it. And you should be able to provide it. So if Ryan was to ask me, like, if I was going out and saying, well, we should no longer be doing X procedure, and Ryan should be, where do you get that information from? And I should be able to list out the references or what mm -hmm. my sources and back that up with some actual information. And I, I see what happens is a lot of times when we ask people for their, their information, they change the goalposts, they try to redirect mm -hmm. the conversation. They don't like being called out on it because they're coming from a perspective and they're not coming from an, an analytic place, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's super difficult. Um, like what I've seen attempted elsewhere, not in professional levels like this, but people start to try to largely create the content they want, it, they want the, something to be known for. And so it turns into like, we will create as much as we possibly can. Platforms have actually done this to the point where they create creator funds. I don't see this as something the BACB would ever do since they don't ever step back and endorse anybody. But like this is, I think, a pragmatic, um, would be a pragmatic solution to start attempting to fund the sort of creation that you want to see out there. Like that's something that is 100% within the control of our leading organizations and could have been done. Um, I have seen ABI, for example, writing a lot more blog posts and, and doing some more video things. I think they asked me to do something here soon with them. Um, it's kind of a video related thing. And so that's, I think, um, where that's where I would spend my time brainstorming, I guess, is like, how do we, how do we come together as a community to create the things? Um, but it, it ties all the way down into like, are we really training people to identify these pitfalls in graduate programs? Like that's, that's a side that I, I would, as someone that teaches an entry level class, I would say like, we do not spend enough time there. I don't think it's only our institution that I work for. Like we are not teaching people how to accurately identify um, illogical thinking and that's not to degrade anybody's thinking, but things that actually start to fall apart and do not make sense, like do not fit within a science. And we need to step back and understand how do we build that logic back up from the ground up and make it make sense. Or if it's not making sense, how do we, from the ground zero, like rethink that question again. Um, and so the, remind me one more time, I was gonna try to tie it into the actual question, Joe. Uh, the last part of that question was, how do we know what we are reading is fact or not? Yeah, so the only way that I currently do it is uh, it's a ton of work. Um, you have to read that perspective. You have to read what others have to say. I kind of go through a few things. If I hear something totally outlandish, I think my go-to is I reach out to a couple of colleagues that I know that may have expertise in the area. Um, I'll do a search myself, and this is not a Google search. This is even farther than a Google Scholar search. Like You have to start to look at the actual evidence. Um, and those things take time. And so um, I think that time pays dividends in the long run. It may not seem like it in the forefront, but it's always been worth it to me to, to understand that argument better 
as a result of what's going on. Um, and it makes you better as a practitioner, as a human, I think too. Um, but you're, it's, it's quite easily to slip into some pitfalls. So like having people that can help you. Um, one thing I've been reading a lot into this summer has been different areas of philosophy outside of behavior analysis. And I have two people that I continually call on a weekly basis that when they see me calling, I'm thankful that they pick up because they know they're getting into a one to three hour conversation about <laughs> me trying to understand, understand different areas of philosophy, right? Um, but that's, that's what's worked really well for me. Again, that's a perspective, not a fact. <laughs> well, but I, I think it's a wonderful point about, and we've talked at length about the loss of analysis and behavior analysis, or at least the training of behavior analysts uh, from, you know, the undergrad all the way to the graduate level and in, in professional training or, or clinical training as well. And, and I think to me, the answer to the, how do we know what we are reading is fact or not is, well, we can address that in our graduate programs and in the training of behavior analysts. So they have the skills to be able to analyze if what they're reading is considered, you know, truth with a capital T or fact yeah. with a capital F um, or where it lands on uh, the, the level of evidence uh, for what they're reading. <laughs> some heavy I questions here. I dig it, yeah. Um, heavy questions. We need some reworking of the field, it seems. Mm -hmm. All right, so man, there's so many questions. There's no way we're gonna be able to get to all of these in the amount Let's, of time that I, we have. We can try to go faster. Let's see. Um, let's see. Justin, you were looking at the questions. Do you have any that you want to, to pull up real quick? Are admins of Facebook groups actual leaders of our field? <laughs> uh, I mean, this is the way I think about it. Everybody, anybody can go out there and create a Facebook group that uh, says yes to an uh, yes and agrees to a term of service at Facebook. Um, so like, just remember that, like, the the I what I look for uh, there's a number of Facebook groups that I'm in that are outside of behavior analysis I spend the majority of my time in that ran super well it's great um, it's very different than the ABA Facebook group landscape um, and I think it comes down to uh, is that person really trying to lean on like the tenets of our field. Are they looking at it from an empirical, deterministic, natural science framework, right? Are they valuing um, those sort of things in every post, in how they comment, in what they put out, et cetera? Um, and they may or may not be a leader. It's For me, it comes down to um, asking those sort of questions. And the more I see them create things that are along those, like the more I look at them as a leader potentially. Um, and leading it, I guess, in a direction that I value. That doesn't mean someone can't lead with a totally different set of assumptions that they think are valid, that doesn't fit within our science and keep going. Like, that's the world we live in, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, <laughs> I think your answer is perfect. There's, I think, yeah, absolutely perfect in what you said of what the characteristics of our leaders and keeping in mind people can be good leaders and leading towards quality intervention and quality outcomes and people yeah. can be not so good leaders, um, which we see in politics every single day. Uh, yeah. So that's the world we live in. Joe, do you want to answer the next question? I guess this new thing of rants with Justin Joe, it's called rapid fire. Rapid fire questions. No, I, I, I completely agree with your answer. I don't if you all have time, I'd like to get through as many as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for cool. sure. Um, so, well, then we'll just take them in order. Uh, we still have some from quarter after the hour. So, yeah. In your experience, if you're a BCBA running a social media page, does that hold you accountable for the content on your platform? 
I would sure as hell hope so. Um, <laughs> the, this is one of those things. Every time I press upload on the Daily VA, like I, I think about it. I think about it again. And then I have like a small wave of anxiety of like, what are the perspectives that I didn't realize before I hit publish? And knowingly, like I might not be able to understand them all. And then I hit publish. And then in the first like hour, it's like checking to see if anything was torn up, if there's any text messages or emails, right? Um, Cause it's, it's scary. Like I said, you can build a platform around or build a, a support network around you or create with multiple people to try to avoid that. That's what we started doing on why we do, we do that podcast was there was always uh, someone that creates the show notes uh, or sorry, does the research two people that record it that are different than that person. And then we have somebody that listens to it back. So you have four people that are listening to something before it goes out and building those sort of uh, safety checks in there. I don't do that on a daily BA. Now a lot of the stuff I've come to start to make is, being uh, reviewed by somebody else beforehand, if there's someone else involved. Um, and that, that's, uh, I don't know, those are some thoughts around it, but the accountability for it, I would sure hope so at the end of the day. Um, and we need to hold each other accountable for that. I'm one of those, like the more we held each other accountable, the better off we're all gonna be for it. Again, as a content creator, like reading some things that are, when I, that's one of the hardest things to confront and swallow is when you, create something that was off the mark. You didn't catch it. Someone, you know, and respect calls it out. And then you're like, well, shit, <laughs> what, what, like it hurts. Like it feels like a character jab, but what it is is just a, a not quite right on your behavior. You adjust and you move forward. Right. Um, now there could be ones that are exceptions there or something very outlandish or horrible would be worse than that. But um, yeah, we, I, th I think we definitely need to hold people accountable for it. Yeah. I, Go ahead. I thousand percent agree. And think if you are a moderator or admin and it's overwhelming, find other people to help you out because we all are busy and I'm sure no one's uh, being an admin or moderator is their full-time career. And no. so find other people to help you out uh, to get the job done. But I thousand percent agree with you, Ryan. And admin and moderation, by the way, if anyone's out there struggling with this, uh, Reddit has done a decent job as a community, I would say for some, how they go about it, having multiple people managing hundred thousand plus subreddits, million plus subreddits, um, and even the use of bots and things like that. So there might be better platforms <laughs> or other strategies, other fields have found to help do that more effectively. Um, and we don't need to necessarily reinvent the wheel there. I, I mean, I have a very small group on Facebook for just sharing behavior analytic research. And the, the thing that works best for me is just post approval. Uh, so no one can post unless an admin looks at it and make sure that it meets the standards for the group mm -hmm. or what the group's purpose is. Uh, and that's a very easy way to ensure that um, what's going out there, you're comfortable with being held accountable for. Yeah. So the, yeah, the interesting thing there is, so we were talking about, um, pages right like personal pages uh so i looked at it as like your your sorry your your personal facebook feed versus your like public page versus like your groups and those um i was given experience to clarify for people from like uh running a, a page that's out there like the daily ba and then those groups i think that there's more creative ways to potentially moderate those sort of things like you were talking about all right let's let's keep trucking through um, what are your thoughts on anti-ABA being all over social media and BCBAs joining the call? Um, Man, this one's... They're not holding back with these questions. Today. No, this one's difficult. Um, 
I was actually looking at a social, uh, a media, I just, um, I lost it. I'll find it real quick for y'all. But I was listening to, um, oh, sorry, I was reading a post on the Teaching Beaver Analysis Listserv in which some people were doing some surveys online looking at which fields would self-identifying autistic individuals not sign up for first when it comes to services for autism. And out of 136 respondents, it was 99 that said they would not sign up for applied behavior analysis. Applied behavior analysis was number one. Now there's a lot of things there, like the where they surveyed, how they did uh, the, the outreach for that, things like that. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is it's a really pertinent question right now. Um, I think it's an important question to be asking. What, we're, what we need to do as a field, I think, is try to really understand what's going on there. Like, do we have an understanding of where these perspectives are coming from? For example, is it certain uh, practitioners that are producing these, like producing horrible outcomes? Um, and are there qualities of those practitioners that we can identify? Are there, what is the prevalence of being against behavior analytic services versus being for? Like, where is that solid research line um, happening? I, I personally haven't found it. I don't know if it's missing um, or if I'm missing it, you know what I mean? But I think there's a lot of questions we need to ask and data that we need to have to really understand what's going on. Um, because right now I see a lot of perspectives and I see um, even and read some things that sound absolutely horrible, but it's also so disconnected from the things that I've experienced in behavior analysis that it, it's like uh, hard to understand what's going on. And that's usually when I go to look for more information, more data, right? But I don't think we have that. And what I mean by we is we as in humanity, not just behavior analysis, right? Yeah, so I, I think that we have to recognize that there's been uh, bad intervention out there. And we've talked about it and adherence uh, to rigid protocols that don't get desired outcomes. And that's, that's important. I think we have to look at, you know, people's perspectives and history and listen to what they have to say and their experiences. But we have to be careful of overgeneralization that's occurring, that they're speaking for everyone's experience. And we have to be really looking at why certain people post different things, whether it be Facebook or Twitter, or Instagram, or Reddit, which is up there. I didn't even know what Reddit is until Ryan talked about it. Um, and so we have to look at why people post, because sometimes it's not really just to get their perspectives heard or to get conversations. Sometimes it's just simply to get in arguments and people like getting in arguments and that's their, the real function behavior. And so, you know, I think we have to, uh, one, listen to the perspectives and at the same time, defend and talk about what quality ABA is and the results of quality ABA and what our job is helping practitioners are. Yeah, and I think it highlights the problem with the term ABA as well, uh, because ABA means different things to several different people. And clearly to the people that were surveyed in that study, ABA meant something very specific that, uh, doesn't mean the same thing to the three of us, I'm, I'm assuming based on this conversation and our experiences. Um, so I think it's important for us to figure out what are the components of whatever is being called ABA in this context, and how does that compare to what we're experiencing, and then is there any disconnect between the two, and if not, 
that it will inform one thing. And if there is a disconnect, that'll inform another. But I think we need to get a better idea of what the ABA is that people are experiencing that they either like or dislike. Uh, so we can start to see what are the critical components there? And is it what we would consider like modern day progressive ABA? All right, roll on to the next question, Joe. Oof, 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 oof. All right, is there a that, connection? That could have been a rant in itself, by the way. Oh, <laughs> Each one of these questions could be a rant yeah. in zone, and we're gonna have to have Ryan back. Uh, is there a connection between real life behaviors and social media behaviors? How does social media change or influence our behavior? Well, the line's completely blurred between <laughs> what's real and what's not nowadays. Um, I don't know. These are questions. I think it's a fantastic question. I don't know how to answer it. I think this is um, what we've seen with the digital extension of ourselves is it's very easy to have your digital self almost become as important or more important than the actual person you are in the world that you're living in. And that's extremely freaking scary. Um, so I don't know, like they're, they're, they're both behavior. They land within this natural world. We can understand them both, um, but it, it can almost become that you're living two worlds if you're not careful. I think that's what I was trying to get out there. Um, and you don't want one created reality of your social media feed to potentially be what you're living for in your day to day. Um, there was like a year and a half when I was creating content, running around trying to get every video I possibly could for the Daily BA. And I don't remember a hell of a lot of that, but <laughs> it was busy. Um, and it was extremely fun, but it's also like, it, like at what expense was that year and a half of getting all those sort of things? Like, was it valuable for the community? Was it valuable for me? I don't know. I, I asked myself these things um, day to day. And that's almost like one of my self-management strategies around social media. Like if I'm not present enough in the world around me today, then I probably need to scale back tomorrow. <laughs> like I need to... I need to correct that. I don't know if you know, I don't even know if that's what they're going for here. I mean, I, I completely agree. It's just, it's behavior. Both, both of them are behavior. So uh, I think there hasn't been any real um, behavior analytic research to look at. Is there some uh, phenomenon that's different with, uh, you know, real life behavior and social media behavior? Because both of those are happening in real life. I would just look at it as behavior in two various con variously different contexts. Mm -hmm. And what are the difference between the context of the real life and the context of social media? Uh, and that with social media, you have a lot more permanent product than you do uh, in real life behavior. You know, you, if you walk to the supermarket and don't get anything and come back, there's no permanent product of that. Um, but if you type on social media, I'm going to go to the supermarket, that's there until you delete it. So I think that might be one of the one, at least one difference between the two. But I also think there's a lack of research on how social media uh, influences our behavior. I, I don't know of a lot of behavior analytic research that has looked at that in terms of a causal relationship or a functional relationship between social media as a thing and our behavior. So. Solid. All right. Um, now we're at the 204 mark, so we have to make a decision here. Are we, are we gonna wrap it up and maybe schedule another time to go through the rest of this or do we wanna keep on powering through? Cause I also wanna be respectful of the people who has signed up for this hour. I'm down to call it like another 20, 25 minutes if you all want. Finish these ones out that we have. 
we have a keep going in the chat. So <laughs> we're going to keep going. If, if anybody has to duck out, shoot us an email and we'll make sure you get the closing uh, comment. So we don't want to punish you for having to leave. And you all record it afterwards. You're recording and sharing it, right? Yeah, it, it'll be okay. freely available for everyone. Uh, just go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts, it'll show up eventually. So cool. Um, here's a big one. Um, and let's Ryan's... take them one at a time, by the way. I read yep. this one already. Cool. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. You're prepared. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Ryan, how many people do you end up reaching through your content on social media? So this is purely a function of how often you post and how good the content is. And good is defined by the social media platforms uh, at the end of the day. So a good social media post, for example, on Instagram, are the ones that I hold up with the dude with sign. I mean, completely ripping off somebody else's idea called dude with sign and posting those up will do fantastically well on that platform. It fits kind of the current culture. It fits the medium of just like a post, quick read, scroll on to the next, shareable. Um, and that's what I mean by good, just to, to kind of clarify here. Now, what I say that's, those are extremely frustrating for me too, because that is me literally ripping off somebody else's idea and getting reinforced for it like 10 or a hundred X over the other stuff that I make for that platform. Like that is a prime example of the potential pitfalls of social media there. Now, um, so part of that is like, if your content's created in a way that that platform enjoys and it works for that platform, right? When I say enjoys, I'm trying to like, uh, you know, make these things uh, an entity themselves, anthropomorphizing them and such. But like the algorithm starts to select for these things, they can, they can have more reach. And so I would say on an average week, I don't know, um, reach is defined as like screens that it shows on is probably between like 20 and 50,000 people a week. Now that doesn't mean that people are actually watching, clicking in, engaging. That's going to be a much smaller percentage there. You could probably take anywhere from like 10, Fifteen percent of that is like what people are watching, and again, this comes down to sometimes things line up where I have a lot of content to share. Or some things, sometimes things really take off. Last week we had uh, two videos that reached about a quarter million people because it was um, a very timely, important, heartbreaking piece um, about uh, a mother and her child with autism that passed away. Um, and so these things can can change based on what you're putting up there. Um, so. It's a lot. And one of the questions you have as a, a follow-up here is, do you feel responsible for the content you create? More and more with every single number that increases there. And so I've actually had a decrease in the number of uploads on YouTube this year, um, primarily because I find myself sitting in this content vacuum of like my office and not around others that I think have fantastic things to say. Like if it wasn't for Corona and pausing everything, um, I probably would have kept up with my upload schedule and sharing other things. But it's, it's uh, I guess I feel the pressure more and more with every share as you have more people that are potentially watching because in reality, you are guiding part of the conversation. Now it might be for that short video or it might be something that continues on and it, it ends up being in these important cultural discussions like we're having today. Um, but yeah, as your audience grows, I think your responsibility grows as well. Um, at least I seem to be reflecting and thinking on that. So um yeah it's crazy i don't know i've been reflecting a lot as a result of this time <clears throat> that's uh we've all had you know self-quarantine or hanging out at home a little bit more and i think the one thing because yeah i didn't hear do you have any regrets anything that you posted um one thing i think uh, there's two things there: regrets and 
one thing that I think that I was assuming that I shouldn't have was the analysis part and like, where am I pulling my information from? So I'm trying to currently grapple with how can I make something semi-regulated that's showing the analysis portion and showing the logic of how I got there. So what is the data? What is the evidence? And not only, so for example, like in a self-management project, I could say, hey, this is what worked for me, which is largely what happens on YouTube as a platform. But I could say, hey, we have this body research. It's been used X, Y, and Z under X, Y, and Z, or A, B, and C content or context, right? I applied it. Here's the actual proof, both, both visual and through data of like what happened, right? And those are things that I haven't done. I've made assumptions in a sense that people would uh, value the same tenets of behavior analysis as I do and things like that that we've talked about previously, but I haven't been living those out. And so um, do I regret that? Uh, like, I don't know, yes and no. Like I can't go back and correct that. The best thing I can do is realize now that I need to start creating that sort of stuff and create that sort of stuff. Um, there's a couple times I've made things in the past that uh, like inadvertently or purposely was like throwing somebody under the, bu under the bus for something. And so the saying is that I kind of live by now is like, don't roll on somebody else's expense. And I think that's a, a valuable lesson I've learned there. So there's a few things that I could have done far better had I not done those sort of things. And so I would regret those. Um, but I don't live in that regret day to day. Like I acknowledge it. It's a, um, a, uh, a, like a flaw in that behavior at the moment. I need to correct and adjust off of it. So I think about it. Um, and then there was one other question I missed in there, which is, do you have preferred platforms and reasons why? Um, I personally love the visual medium. So YouTube's by far my favorite and part of me getting enamored with um, that YouTuber I talked about, Casey Neistat from the beginning was trying to understand like how do people tell great stories through video? And so that one's still my favorite personally for a lot of uh, um, idiosyncratic reasons of <laughs> it's, it's, it's just uh, that visual medium, like getting the right shot, the right story structure, like really is interesting to me. Um, so that's, that's preferred, but it's uh, what, what would be even better is if somebody figured out from the behavioral community potentially to help create a social media platform that solved the issues that we're talking about today. Like how do we, how do we leverage, how do we come to expect, encourage, and promote quality content. I wanna hope that these are the questions of Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, et cetera, are asking themselves. Like they've gotta be in the age of misinformation, swinging elections and things like that that we know is going on. But like that, that would be my favorite if it provided the same joy of like a YouTube, but also had the amazingness of like <laughs> science and data, <laughs> like actual correct information, right? Um, so I almost want to say that my favorite one's hopefully not out yet, and I hope it shows up because I think they all can have their pitfalls. The little awesome. little teaser there. Yeah, it sounds like something might be in the works. No, uh, but if I could, I'm not working on it. But if I could, <laughs> I don't want to give any false hopes there. If I could <laughs> sign up for a 30 year project, I think that'd be the one I'd sign up for right now. Like, how would you create that? Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if there's sometimes competing contingencies between what the, you know, the bottom line is for some of these social media platforms and what they could be used for if that bottom line wasn't potentially there. Yeah. Um, all right. 
Rolling right along. So being a social media influencer has been a powerful tool in other parts of the world for years. How much do you think social reinforcement, attention, recognition plays a role in the quality of content created in AVA groups? Uh, it, the dopamine rush that people talk about in the social dilemma and such is pretty real. <laughs> like it's, it's, a, it's a huge component. Um, these are things where I think the, the platforms themselves could probably have a, a good discussion around data that they have looking at how people shift over time. So like how has my behavior shifted over the last three or four or five years? I could go back and look and we could scroll through my timelines. But like they probably have an understanding of questions like this, right? So I'm hoping these things are stuff that our community of social media platform users start to ask our platforms actually disclose to us because I think they have the, the best data on this. Um, my own perspective is it's pretty easy to chase the next click, like, share, etc. But that's a very dangerous place to live in, is my understanding. And so as much as I create stuff, I try to constantly listen to other creators that are completely outside of our field um, and what they regret, what they learned, etc. Um, I'm glad to share those with other people who those are, but that's that's stuff that I almost listen to for two, three, four hours a week for years as I'm listening to other perspectives of people's up and downfalls. Well, and I think that's where social media creates a interesting dilemma for us uh, because there might be, you know, the trolls that are looking just for attention or, or something like that, that are posting in these groups. Uh, but it's also a permanent product that other people could stumble upon that they could use to inform, you know, their perspective or, or how they view our field. So it's a balance between talking about uh, ignoring some of that potential att attention seeking, posting or whatever it is, um, but also not ignoring it to the point to where someone might use that to inform their opinion when it's, you know, not a truth with a capital T or a fact with a capital F. Yeah. All right, rolling on. Two more, right? One, two, or three more. Three, three more. What do you do about stuff that is not yet researched adequately? How do you even know if it is researched adequately? If it isn't researched adequately, how can we say what is fact and what isn't? This one's difficult. Um, so the research adequately, I think maybe y'all can describe this a little bit better, but the, the different levels of empirical evidence at the end of the day, like a case study versus an RCT versus decades of research stacked up um, is, is really what I would start to think about here. Um, let, me, let me jump in on the adequately part. Um, okay. Like uh, once again, and I guess this gets brought up in a lot of rants, look at the social stories literature. There's over 80 studies probably on social stories, but the majority of them are not really high quality studies. And I think you have to look at things like experimental design. And if it was done correctly, if you can weed out confounding variables and attribute the change in behavior to your intervention. Also, if, if the procedures are described well, operationally defined, if the uh, dependent measures are described well, if the participants are described well, so I think adequately, we really have to get back to looking at detail 
of the designs and the purposes of the designs. And that will help guide you along with, you know, looking at what type of designs. Obviously an AB case design is not as strong as a reversal design, uh, nor is like a B design is not as strong as an AB case design. So you have to look at what uh, type of designs were also used. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a tough, tough question. And I think it goes along the lines with the other question that some people might not have access uh, to the peer reviewed literature. Uh, so they have to go off of the information that they're getting either from a Google search or um, something that was posted online by someone that they would view as an authority. Um, but I think that's where taking the tenets of science and being a healthy skeptic is useful. Um, and also viewing, well, do we need to research basic behavioral phenomenon um, to be able to know that something that I'm trying to do might not be researched, but it's based on the, the principles of behavior analysis. There doesn't need to be a study for everything that you do clinically, um, as long as you're doing it from a behavior analytic perspective, if you're you know, a BCBA or you're, you're falling under a behavior analytic um, philosophy, like reinforcement works. There's lots of research to show that. So if you're doing an intervention that is based on reinforcement, but there's no research behind the name of that specific procedure, um, you still are probably okay. Um, but you have to balance that with also like what Justin was saying, looking at the literature in a very analytical and skeptic skeptical way and going with the best available evidence that's there. But that's a tough question. I dig. There's one other thing I'll add here, which is uh, there's bodies out there that are not within our field. So one of them, what is it? The What Works database. They were trying to gather a bunch of perspectives and look at research and start to create aggregate statements off of what research do we actually know and think we can say like for certain is fact. Um, we see this with ASAPs. So what is it? The American Scientific American Society of Autism Treatment, that's it. Um, so ASAP makes some statements out there as well, aggregating the information. Um, and these are things that we've had discussions in the past in our field. Um, the earliest one I think was Cantor in 1953 was talking about a system that would allow us to understand just how far can we take our claims of scientific evidence and where do we need to further go in and research. We don't seem to have that cohesive organization whatsoever. You might have it in a research lab or in a small verbal community that's researching similar areas. But as a cohesive group of behavior analysis, like we're not coming together and be like, hey, we have some real big holes here that we need to figure out. And this area is probably good to go. Like BST, we can probably button this up. <laughs> we can start looking elsewhere. Like there's there's certain conversations there that might be useful for us as a community um, that, we could, that, that would help us in this as well if we all work together. Great point, great point. Hey, we're down to two. We're down to two. Look at this. All right. oh. uh, so how do we as a community work to mitigate false information and, and increase accurate information on social media? Is there a better way than making controversial points that elicit extreme emotional responses? Um, if you watch The Social Dilemma and you see some of what's going on in, um, I would say, in a more largely public discourse from leaders in uh, or ex-leaders in these these tech companies is they're saying that these are things that we need to program for. So we need to have our algorithms start to select for things that are more accurate versus less accurate. And one of the discussions that starts to pop up there is, are you 
enabling people to share their voice? Is this an extension of free speech law? Or is this something where now you are a, um, a publisher and you are now going to be held responsible for the statements that you're going to be put out there? And this is a very big conundrum when you're talking about someone like Facebook, for example, with 2 billion active users. Like they can't handle being held accountable as a business for all 2 billion people's statements on there. They'd be litigated to closure <laughs> like immediately. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty big conundrum. And I'm, what I personally think is the way I hope to see it go. Uh, and I say this because like I have, I don't work in these organizations and I, I don't think I ever will um, is could we start to have the leaders in those organizations realize that they need to start selecting for more than just what works on shareability, driving ad revenue, et cetera. We need to be a little bit more responsible in what they're selecting and sharing out there. Um, and I get that that's not something that any of us could do. So I'm sorry, I don't leave you with like a practical thing to start doing <laughs> on your part. I mean, <laughs> Outside of create that content, right? <laughs> I mean, I think we've been described, Joe and I, that I'll create more posts that create controversy in the terms of the tone, and Joe will be more uh, scholarly and uh, nice. I think that's <laughs> kind of our, our good cop, bad cop that we've played now for years uh, together. Apparently, and, that's what has been labeled. No intention. No. Like, that wasn't planned. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think for me, it's looking at some of these posts of what the purpose of the post is and the sides. And I think people take sides on the ones at least I respond to in terms of opinions. And I know there's certain people I'm not gonna be able to influence no matter what I say, no matter how I come across. And I know there's certain people that what they say, no matter how they come across, it's uh, they're not gonna influence certain people. So it's really about those people in the middle and, and getting those people in the middle to see what I think is important. And I'm sure it's for the same the other persuadable uh, yeah, it's the same as politics i mean trump supporters are always going to be trump supporters biden supporters are going to be biden supporters and what they're arguing for right now i don't know when you guys are going to hear this on the podcast <laughs> but 30 days before the election is the in the independent voters the voters that they can swing to their sides and i think that's why we do it and so sometimes you know you are bringing a, a knife into a spoon fight i mean that is just something you are going to do and and so you do it because there's a certain reason for it. And we just have to be, you know, understand that. And there's times that you're gonna be more nice with it and just who your personality is and what your goals are with it. Solid. Yeah, all right. Last question. Last, Last one. one. So how do you ensure the lack of peer reviewed evidence you described is not related to a lack of access to academia or privilege on, on our end? Uh, how do we ensure that we're understanding our privilege as academic folk when weighing in on what's shared by populations who might not have access uh, to what we do? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna jump in with, with my perspective on this, um, at least in my initial perspective, is, well, we're doing stuff like this. Uh, I think we're, we're acutely aware as academic researchers that um, there's some people have access and some people don't and we're privileged to have access to those things so how can we create access to that content or that or that information uh, that other people might not have access to that's why we do ramps for free um, that's why we have a free RBT training that's you know that's why we continually try to find ways to get rid of those barriers um, based on privilege 
so people can have access to that information. That's just one thing, and that's not going to solve, and that's not a complete answer to this question, but I think finding ways to be able to create content that doesn't have like a paywall um, or some other way that's preventing people from accessing that information is important to me at least. Yeah, this one's difficult. Um, that's a solid question though. So a few things that like, I've thought of when reading this over a few times, our, our field of behavior analysts seems to be, like the BACB um, I think could play a role in this. So them providing some, they have, a, for example, a couple of journals that we have access to as part of our credentials. Um, expanding those drastically would be uh, one way to start increasing and ensuring that we have a lot of different understanding of what's going on outside of just our own field or in those few select journals. The individual practitioner themselves, whether you are submitting your research or creating it, um, I see people I see people pushing for um, open access content. So the most recent issue in Behavior Analysts in Practice, 23 articles on the COVID-19 um, were completely free of access. So there's like movements in that direction. Um, and then what else? Like you were talking about bringing down the barriers of paywalls. That one's super difficult. Like you can create content. Content creation doesn't go without costs. Uh, no matter what it is, whether it's your time of typing up uh, and reading and writing uh, or creating something, whether it's peer reviewed or a video or et cetera, um, to hosting and things like that as well. So the cost is something that I try to personally balance out as much as I can on sharing um, as much as I can for free to allow me to keep going forward. Um, but it is extremely hard. Like YouTube over two and a half years has paid me something like $1,200. Um, the, the camera and lens that I use cost more than $1,200 like <laughs> to create something quality. Um, so it's a difficult balance there um, that I try to kind of continually ask myself, is there enough free content out there um, to, and is it at an equitable price range if it is priced out there? Um, so I know, I don't know, those are first few thoughts. I know that there was some clarification here though. Can I read it? Yeah. Uh, so, gonna, oh, go ahead, Ryan, if you want. I said, I said, I meant more on the lines of privilege of being able to create peer-reviewed journal articles rather than access to reading existing literature. Though that is true, there are a lot of pay paywalls that shouldn't be there. Um, so yeah, I guess to wrap up re here real quick, the, the paywalls, not us not wanting the paywalls there, when we live in a society that's ran off of cash at the end of the day, like it's really hard to sidestep those sort of things. And that's something where the, if you took those paywalls away, how would that business survive? That's the question I like to ask back to people that ask those sort of questions. I'm not saying that it's impossible. I just like each business is, is incurring costs and providing some sort of service. And I think the, each business would have to have that question asked to them of like, can they truly keep going? Um, what I've learned is I can create more and more myself as a result of financial support that helps me with some of the minimum costs, like hosting our courses right now costs us $500 a month. The liability insurance of that is $6,000 a year. 
Um, so you're talking about like I, the YouTube stuff that I've ran, I've announced this last three years. Like it's not peer reviewed like you're asking about here, but it's cost me anywhere between 12 and $19,000 just to cover my ass and be able to create content. Like that's, <laughs> that's nowhere near the, the $1,200 that YouTube brought me in. Right. Um, so it's like, having the paywalls actually allow you to do some of the free stuff and disseminate has been in my experience. And I know it's not ideal, but it, it seems to be how the, the game is structured in air quotes. And so I try to just continually balance that um, and, and hope I'm doing it right and listen to people. So, yeah, I, I think those are excellent points. I, I do want to say with the journals like Springer or Taylor and Francis, I want to be clear that us as researchers don't get any of that money. So Joe and I have published over a hundred articles and, you know, we don't get a cent for whatever Taylor and Francis or Springer get on it. And I do want to say that many researchers uh, do offer, give the article as an academic or educational opportunity if you reach out. So don't spend the $39 if you know you can make that connection. I, and then last, the, uh, the privilege of being, uh, creating articles. Yeah, you know, Joe and I, that is our profession. Uh, and we get paid to run research and part of a research team. And there's others that, you know, are universities, and that's their job or grant funding, and that's their job. And so I guess that is a, a privilege that we get that. But I would encourage, you know, to go if you if you don't have access, go and volunteer and help out on research teams. There's a lot of people that would openly invite you to, to, you know, you get that experience and can be part of the research and that research team. And so that you can get that kind of experience as well. I do think this will be an excellent discussion about privilege. Uh, later on, we have uh, Dr. Elizabeth Fong and Dr. Uh, Patricia Wright uh, later cool. on one of these episodes. And I think that that's a perfect discussion for them uh, because that is their areas of expertise. Ryan, I appreciate you going. We said 60 minutes and you went 90 <laughs> no. minutes. You're, you're a for, of this. No, likewise. Thanks for like sticking it out to answer all the questions. I always feel bad when I talk too much, we don't get to the questions. So realizing that halfway through, I was like, let's see if we can answer these. No, this was no, that's great. We could, we could do this forever. I think we could keep going. Uh, I, but uh, so everyone can get their CEUs if they're interested. I'm putting the information in the chat box if you're, if you're watching this live. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, the closing key term is Anderson. So the opening is Tom. And the closing is Anderson, like our buddy from MySpace, Tom Anderson. <laughs> Nice. And Joe, do you do we know when the next rants is? Do we? We do. The next one is on the twentieth uh, with Sarah Trotman. We're going to be talking about autism treatment and big business. Oh snap! So that, that'll be <laughs> another interesting and rants, which I'm sure we'll get a lot of uh, questions. Ryan, thank you so much for being a yes. part of this. Thanks for having me, y'all. And that ends rants with Justin and Joe. All right, everybody. <laughs> uh, take care. See you. Thanks again, Ryan. Later.